on this episode of The James Quandall Show. This time, maybe just what we need, like a, a little chick pecking out of its shell. You might think, oh, let me help it get out of its shell. It needs that challenge. And so this may be just what we need spiritually, physically, to kind of wake us up to the possibilities that are so bright before us. Hilda Labradagor is a biohacker, a certified health coach, and fitness professional. She is also the host and producer of the popular Wise Tradition podcast on behalf of the Weston A. Price Foundation. Known as Holistic Hilda, Hilda enjoys sharing the best of experts, experiences, and epic adventures on the podcast, her Holistic Hilda YouTube channel, and on ancestral health tours that she leads. Hilda is also a podcast coach and the author of Podcasting Made Simple. She especially enjoys helping people in the health and wellness space launch their shows. Hilda has energy to spare thanks to her love for sunshine and liverwurst. I'm a fan of organ meats. And um, yeah, the cookbook's full of good foods. It's like a nourishing traditions type-esque book. Right. I remember when I first met Ben at one of our conferences, I think it was, and he was just all about the ancestral way of eating. And he really understood it because interestingly, you know, some paleo people are all about, let's say, yes, meat, but, you know, nuts and making sure the meat is lean. And I'm like, wait, no, you know, we're more about the the whole shebang. And I felt like Ben really gets it. Yes. And eating nose to tail. And yeah, I just, I think he's the best. So, so speaking of um, sort of, the traditional way of living. I saw that you were lo- You were recently in Ecuador. Yeah. And I want to hear what you learned there because I was looking at your pictures and it, first of all, it's absolutely beautiful, unbelievable pictures, the sunrises and the sunsets there. And I just want to hear what you learned. Oh my gosh, James, I hardly know where to start because um, I had heard that Ecuador was a country that had um, a very large indigenous population. And, um, you know, I'm all about ancestral wisdom. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go. But the very first woman I encountered, a Kichwan woman, like just blew my mind. She was a midwife working at a hospital trying to make their birthing center more welcoming to indigenous people. So they had hired her to like let people know we're all about your traditions. We're not going to try to replace those, but we want to have modern medicine at the ready in case there's a high risk complication of some sort or what have you. So she would speak to the people in their traditional language of Quechua and she would wear her own traditional clothing to make them feel welcome. And even the birthing room was made so that it didn't look like a hospital because in the Quechua culture, white represents death. So they had some hurdles to get over to make the women feel like this is a place I want to give birth. And so this woman, Mama Rosita, just blew my mind. And she even showed me how she would play harmonica for the women to let the babies know, too, that they're coming to a joyous place and all these things, not to mention that the women can give birth in the position of their choice. So this was just my first connection with an indigenous person there. And what really blew me away is she kept saying over and over, nuestro cuerpo es sagrado, nuestro cuerpo es sagrado, which means our bodies are holy. I just loved her perspective and appreciation of what the body is capable of. And the next thing I knew, 
Mama Rosita invited me to a ritual bath that evening because it was the time of Inti Raimi, which is the sun festival. And so she's like, do you want to come? And I was like, yeah. And she said, and participate. And I was like, yes. You know, but then again, I didn't know what I was saying yes to. I was a little bit nervous. Um, and I've noticed I was shivering before I even got in the water because my friends were telling me it was really cold. Even though I do cold adaptation, I was nervous. But I realized oh, I'm shivering more because this is something I'm not accustomed to. I don't know what this ritual is about exactly. But it really was about the healing energy of the earth and the waters, um, kind of releasing bad energy and receiving good energy. And that's one of the lessons I learned throughout Ecuador is that we need to reconnect with the earth. And this is actually a tip I know we're going to talk about how to create a healthy home environment. I think part of the secret is actually getting outside of the building because our ancestors spent three quarters of their day outside, you know, hunting and gathering and getting water from the well and playing. The children would be playing. And, you know, it was a mix of things, but all outside. And yes, they would go inside to be safe, you know, at nighttime to stay away from the tigers or what have you, you know, but we spend most of our time inside. And so we're missing the benefit of the healing energy of the earth and the sun. And so that's, that was a huge reminder to me in Ecuador of um, the power of nature for healing and strength and positive energy. Yeah. And how did you feel while you were there personally? Because I know you have a pretty healthy lifestyle here at home. So how was it there? Well, I was a little busy <laughs> because um, my friend um, Andrea from Karishina Travel had set up this itinerary. And so ahead of time, she's telling me, what do you think about going, you know, to Cotopaxi after we go to Otavalo? And I'm like, oh, it sounds good. I don't really know Ecuador. So I'm just like, it all got the thumbs up. And then I get there and it's like three hours to Cotopaxi and four hours to Otavalo. And I was like, ah, but when we stopped, which was often, obviously, to connect with the earth, with the waterfalls, or to be a part of the Indi Raimi Festival, which is this it's got many facets to it, but a, a kind of a Thanksgiving celebration to the earth and to the sun for all that they give. I just reveled in it. I just reveled in it. I was eating guinea pig with the best of them. You know, kui is very popular down there. And of course, soups, locro, soups that are really made with a, a hearty base of, you know, animal bones probably is the base. And then you'd have the potatoes, which are big there, just like they are in neighboring Peru. Um, and then my favorite Soup was a locro that was made with coagulated blood <laughs> and mm. it was made with like lamb tripe. And I was like, this is, <clears throat> as we were saying earlier, it's nose to tail living. It's the best. Yeah. And tell me more about the ritual. I'm really curious what the what you ended up doing when you were shivering and you recalled and then you're like, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. What did you get yourself into? So this Inti Raimi festival, which is like a sun festival celebration, lasts weeks in uh, different parts of Ecuador. And I imagine various communities celebrate it in different ways. And I was in the, uh, I think, the Otavalo region, Santa Barbara, and I got invited to be a part of various aspects of it. So one was this ritual bath or cleansing. And what it entailed was, um, and I, again, I both observed and participated, which blew my mind because generally they don't invite outsiders to be a part of it. But I had felt a connection with Mama Rosita. So she was kind enough to extend the invitation to me. So I'm standing there and she and another community leader were simply welcoming everyone and welcoming the community. They were speaking in Spanish. Um, and then they didn't describe the ritual, but I thought I'd 
like hold back a little bit, watch, and then participate. What they did was they invited members of the community to get into this river and stand there while Mama Rosita came around to each one individually. And she would, in a ceramic bowl, scoop up the water. And it was like a baptism of sorts, James. She would scoop up the water and pour it over them while saying some words in Quechua. So what the words were exactly, I can't tell you. Um, But after doing that, um, we were also to take a bundle of herbs that included some that were kind of almost like stinging nettles, I guess, that kind of would, you know, cause your skin to react. But the idea was, I think, to kind of you know, beat the bad stuff out of you a little bit and then to receive the the healing, cleansing water. And then someone came behind Mama Rosita with a bowl of like burning herbs of some sort. It might have been a combination of sage and some other local herbs to just have us breathe that in. And again, it felt very almost New Year's Eve-ish, like letting go of the past and and welcoming in the new, letting go of any bad energies and receiving the healing energy of the earth. And so I stood with a group of about 12 community members and we went through that. And then gradually after they received that kind of ceremonial ritual cleansing, they would leave and other community members would come in. And it was just, it was amazing. And she asked me afterwards, she said, how do you feel? How do you feel? But I didn't have any, you know, presenting problems. So I couldn't say day and night, but I did say I felt blessed really to be a part of it and and how did you sleep that night oh i slept like a baby (laughs) because i think that for if you kind of have a healthy foundation to begin with that Mm. if you notice you slept maybe better than normal that's a pretty good sign that you know i'll have to go back and look because i actually did travel with my ura ring and um, i'll have to go back and look and see what it said for that night but it just it felt very special and sacred. And another aspect of the Inti Raimi Festival is a um, <clears throat> a dance that they do. And um, on some days in the communities, the men do the dancing, and on other days, the women do. But I was told by Apauki Flores in that community of Santa Barbara that um, just as a woman after giving birth is completely depleted and exhausted, um, so we perceive that the earth after giving us its harvest is also depleted of energy and we want to thank it and return it, give it an an exchange of energy, if you will. And so what they do is this dance that's kind of a stomping dance that goes on for hours, if not days. And what they're doing is they're giving their energy and their gratitude to the earth. Interestingly, I found out that in ancient times, I believe they did this stomping dance barefoot. And now they wear these heavy military style boots. Um, But be that as it may, um, I went on the day when the men were dancing around. And again, unexpectedly, they invited me to do it. I think I look like a girl that just got off a horse that was really uncomfortable. But (laughs) it wasn't the most graceful, graceful thing. But um, I sensed, again, this appreciation of nature. And I've been reading this book lately called braiding sweetgrass. And I think in that book, the woman says, what if the sun and the earth aren't functioning optimally, not because of, you know, all the pollution and all those things, which of course are factors, but what if it's because of our lack of gratitude? Mm. And so that really struck me. And I, I believe I came home with a greater appreciation for nature and a desire to express my thankfulness to God and to nature for all that we receive from it. 
So this sounds like a traditional harvest festival. So was it around like the longest day of the year? Or was, was it yes, the middle it of was, June? Yes, it was around June 21st. That's a really okay. good observation on your part. And um, it's funny because I did a little study before I went because I wanted to know what I was getting into with the Indi Raimi Festival. And then I got there and Apauki said, you know, it takes years it takes years to understand this festival. And I was like, okay, wow. that makes sense because, you know, Wikipedia would say one thing and other resources said other things. And I think it's because it's a tradition that's not part of our own culture. And so it's very hard to understand. But one of the beautiful things, um, speaking of, like you said, a, a harvest kind of festival is there was a, a pampa mesa, they call it, a large community table that was set at one point during our visit. And all the men... And this particular community sat around this tablecloth that was spread on the ground. And then all the women sat on the periphery, but they started providing the various dishes to the men and to everyone to share. Um, it was like the best of what they had reaped, you know. So, again, there was the guinea pig and the chicken and the the lard and the cracklins and the eggs and the avocado. And everyone was just sharing with one another. And there was this really beautiful sense of community. And I know we're going to get there, but as we talk about our households and how we can make them healthier, I think one aspect that may be overlooked is that we're just too compartmentalized, even separated from our neighbors. Some of us don't even know our neighbors' names. And so we need to look for a way to reconnect with community. It may be those in our immediate vicinity. It may be um, more folks who are more like-minded, who are a little further away, whatever it is, but find a way because that spirit does so much for our physical and emotional and spiritual bodies that I think we don't quite realize. Yeah. And that was a place I wanted to go actually was creating a tribe in your own neighborhood or your own community, because we have conversations like this with virtual friends who are living and breathing in similar lifestyles we are, but our neighbor may have completely different ideas of what health is. And it's difficult to create a healthy environment if it's just your home, like mm -hmm. you really need a healthy neighborhood or community or a zip code. But how 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 do you create sort of a tribe in your local community? How have you had success with that? Oh, that's a great question. I um, have looked for common ground because, oh, my goodness. Yes, my neighbors see things really differently than I do. And I mean, some of them work out. OK, but, you know, a lot of them think probably eating healthy means uh, a no meat diet or something. Um, and of course, in this time of, you know, a worldwide health crisis, um, they've made different choices than I have. But what do I do? I find common ground. So I play the guitar and I sing. A couple of my neighbors play other instruments. And I knew they had a band. Um, but when my kids were really little, I was like, oh, I don't I don't have time. I can't be in their band. I'm too busy, you know, with my own children and whatnot. But then as my kids got older, I was like, OK, now is my time. So I'm in a band with these guys. And it's really fun. And it's really special because I found a way to connect music. Talk about a common denominator is amazing and powerful and moving. And so it's wonderful to sing with them. It doesn't mean I I sup with them all the time or, you know, like I said, we, that we have everything in common, but it keeps us connected. And I do feel like, as I said a moment ago, we're far too disconnected from those around us. So 
Um, I don't rely on them as my um, spiritual or health support community. And I don't look to them as my like-minded friends, but I, I'm happy to have the connection with them because I do think it's important, just like we have a diverse diet, to have a diverse community of friendships and not just to be in like an echo chamber with everyone who thinks exactly as we do. So that's what I do in my immediate neighborhood. Um, and then further afield, I am a chapter leader for the Weston Price Foundation, and they have chapters all over the world, even in Ecuador. I met a chapter leader in Quito, which was really? amazing. Oh, my gosh. Yes, I could tell you some stories about him. But um, anyway, this is my community that I turn to for, um, you know, potlucks and connections and encouragement and stuff like that. Not to mention connections with people like you who I haven't even met in person, but that I feel an affinity to because I do feel like we're all kind of pulling in the same direction for uh, a health that would uh, help people thrive and not just survive in these times. Yeah. And are you seeing a change in trends or directions? Because so I've been following your work and the Weston A. Price Foundation for a while. And it for a, for a long time, I felt like isolated, like nobody really understood what I was talking about. But I'm starting to see it more in the farmer's markets growing in the raw, the meats and the raw milks and all that. I'm starting to see more of that. Are you what are you seeing? Oh, yes, that's it's so encouraging. It is the silver lining of these times. In talking with Joel Salton and Sally Fallon Morell, especially when um, there was that first, you know, outbreak of COVID-19 or what have you, um, both of them were reassuring me about the power of the land and food to nourish us and protect us. And um, and then both of them, both of them are farmers, have seen their business totally, you know, step up with more people having interest in local food, um, not only because it's organic and because they know they're farmer, but because it's they don't have to depend on the larger infrastructure that could collapse at any time. As you know, there was a shortage Which of meat did. and some in other April things. In April and May of last year, if you went to the grocery store, you couldn't find any meat, let alone grass-fed beef. Exactly. So this really, really encourages me. And also, um, when Sally started the Weston Price Foundation about 21 years ago, um, nobody had ever heard of kombucha. And now you can go into Safeway or any regular grocery store and find it. So And ferments, right? So it's very, very hard heartening on that level. Um, on other levels, um, I do sense a kind of hardening about almost like, you know, science and traditional wisdom are just, you know, a, there's some kind of juxtaposition there diametrically opposed. And I, you know, very much disagree. Obviously, I think our ancestors had wisdom far beyond our own and science is sometimes just catching up to it. Um, but so that makes me sad. But one way in which I keep a healthy heart and healthy attitude at home and everywhere I go is by staying focused on the world that I want to see and be a part of. And so I um, do my best to, you know, just keep nourishing myself and others the best I can and staying positive and not letting all kind of the outside static, you know, mess with my head because the happiest time I had recently actually was in Ecuador because I was completely disconnected from any, you know, media sources. And people asked me, well, what was COVID like down there? And, you know, similar to what we've seen in other parts of the world, um, there was heightened concern and fear and kind of security in cities and less of that in the outskirts and in the rural areas because, um, well, because I think in part this connection with the land that I've mentioned before, in one community, I, it was with Apauki and his wife, Christina, and Santa Barbara, 
his wife said to me, you know, a lot of our community members got sick about a year ago, around the time of Inti Raimi. And she said, you know what we did? We went to every single household and we took a combination of local herbs and plant medicines, 24 of them. And we took them to every household. And she said, Hilda, no one was hospitalized and no one died. And I was like, can I see the list <laughs> of those herbs? I mean, it sounded amazing, but then I realized she couldn't find it. And it was no big deal because I realized in part, there were many things at play that helped those people be well. Number one, they were already in a rural community. Number two, they were in community, you know, and number three, those plants and medicines were growing right there. They were local to them. And so I feel like, you know, there are lessons we can take from that, but we don't need their little list to know how to nurture health in ourselves, wherever we are. Yeah. And I think I've spent more time in the rural community and going to farms and visiting and seeing where the food I'm buying is coming from and spending time with those people and their land. And I've noticed that they have a different attitude. They understand that there are bad times and good times. Like just last year, a friend of mine who grows blueberries here in South Carolina, his whole crop got destroyed because we had a late frost. Mm -hmm. And so the, the bloom already happened. He normally would spray some water on them and help them to freeze. He couldn't do it for whatever reason. He lost the entire crop. And he's like, eh, it is what it is. Like, and then guess what? He had a really good year of potatoes and tomatoes later in the year. Ah. So like, he's used to sort of things not being in his control. And I think health, there's some parts of health we can't control. So we can't worry about that. What we can worry about is what we eat and how much we sleep and how we move and all of that. And when you worry about those things, the external factors don't affect us as much. Oh, 100%. I agree with you so much. And it's just, it's really nice to hear these stories of of these people that have found just ways to thrive in this time, because that's another thing is we can use our current times as a reason to fall back on our health, or we can use it as a reason to jump up in our health. I think it's um, really true. We have so much agency that we overlook that we think, oh, we just have to do whatever other people tell us to do. I don't know if you remember when you were little, but I remember my kids at three and four and five being like, you're not the boss of me. They wouldn't say that to me, but they would say that to their little friends or what have you. And, um, and I th- think there's a sense in which we need to say, how, yes, how can I take care of myself right now? External circumstances be whatever they may be. We could be in jail and still be as strong and as healthy as possible. Like you said, considering our mindset, our spirituality, our physical movement, um, you know, there are some things we wouldn't have control over, obviously, how much time we get outside and the meal plan, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but we could still do the best we could under our circumstances, right? And so... As a matter of fact, I love this old joke where someone says, you know, you know, hey, to his friend, how are you doing? He says, okay, under the circumstances. And his friend says, what are you doing under there? <laughs> like, we don't have to be under the circumstances. You know, we can be above them. And that's that's actually my goal. That is one of my huge objectives right now is to help people thrive and really look to how this time, as difficult as it may be, maybe just what we need, like a, a little chick pecking out of its shell, you know, it, you might think, oh, let me help it get out of its shell. It'll die. It needs that challenge to become stronger. And so this may be just what we need spiritually, physically on all the levels to kind of wake us up to the possibilities that are so bright before us. Yeah. So let's talk about those possibilities. What are, what are they? Like, what can we achieve? What's 
Let's start with how you define good, well-rounded health, like a good health. It's so multifaceted. That's why I go by holistic Hilda, because I used to think it literally just had to do with exercise. I was like, you eat what you want, keep the hours that you want in terms of how late you stay up, who cares? And just keep moving. And yeah, it was working for me. I mean, in my early 20s, why not? I was working out. It didn't seem to matter, you know, but I'm so thankful. Um, a good friend of mine turned me on to the Weston Price Foundation and she said, Hilda, of course what you eat matters. And I thought, oh my gosh, why didn't I think of it before? It's just like a fuel we might put in a car. You, It's not going to run on, you know, whatever, something that's not gasoline, right? Or diesel. It needs something or maybe electricity. It needs something to get going. And so she made me have this big aha. And then I was like, okay, it's exercise and food. You know, it's exercise and diet. That's all it takes. And then I, oh, then of course I came to realize it had much more to do with than just even that, you know, it has to do with our emotional state of mind, our, our spirit. So what I do is I try to kind of um, stack my hacks. And what I mean is I've started gradually adding things to my routine and to my family's routine. Um, as I've learned, I've added them because what good would it do me to hear from all these experts that I hear from on the Wise Traditions podcast and not apply it, right? Yeah, I love how you end your show. You always go, what's one thing the listener can yeah, do? yeah. And like catalog all those. And if we just did those like and stacked them, yes. like we would be in pretty good position. Right? And it's amazing. I, so I've started doing that. And my husband's like, okay, why are you doing this? And I'm like, because I learned about it. But it's not as many as you would think. So many people talk about like, just get outside, especially lately, James. This is one of the secrets for thriving in these times, I think, is getting outside because disconnected from nature, we forget our purpose and reconnected to nature. It reminds us that we're part of a bigger picture. And it's a beautiful picture. Like if I just watch the news, I'm discouraged. If I go outside and see a bird on a branch, I'm encouraged, you know? So it's a small thing, but it's really important. Also, I really am a strong believer in getting plenty of sunlight, um, you know, and getting it straight into your eyes as early as possible. I've learned from Dr. Jack Cruz and Matt Maruka, Thaddeus Owen. I have several kind of biohacking friends that have taught me about the power of natural light. So, um, so again, like, so how do I stack those hacks? I just get outside as early as I can in the morning, right? I take my dog for a walk and I know when my kids were little, it would have been more of a struggle. But what I recommend for young parents listening is just to get everybody out as early as you can and make a little routine, something fun about it, you know, so they look forward to it. Let's see if we can stand outside barefoot if it's cold for five minutes or whatever it is. So it's kind of a game, but help them see the beauty of nature. And I think it will help reveal more of who they are and what they're meant to be in this world. So that's one of the things. I mean, obviously, a nutrient-dense diet is critical. I do my best to eat organic, eat local, know my farmer, all those things for me and my health, but it's great for the earth as well. Sally and I were just talking the other day about how some people used to say, we've, the U S has got to feed the world. And I think that's, it's a beautiful sentiment, I guess, in the heart, but it's really wrong headed because um, if I feed you and some other part of the world, you become dependent on me. And what if that person in that part of the world can grow plenty of rice or have their goats or what have you? So, and actually they can. So the solution is not for the U.S. to export all our food. It's rather to have more local food and maybe more support for those people so that they can have their own food and not be dependent on us. But I yeah. digress. Imagine if we grew food, good quality food for the people here, and then 
our smart, brilliant minds went out and and helped to educate uh, other people how to replicate what we did then right. with their own food that thrives in their environment instead of trying to take our flour and grow it there, right? Exactly. And actually, most a lot of land in the world is not arable. In other words, you can't even grow something on it. That's why chickens and goats and cattle are are seen around the world. And I don't understand how you know certain people want us to go meatless because in some parts of the world, this is the best quality food that people can have. They can't even grow something else. I mean, compare rice and a, a slice of beef or goat. You know, it's it's night and day in terms of what you can get from it nutrient-wise. So um, yeah, so I'm big on getting outside, plenty of sunshine, nutrient-dense diet, and then the spirit piece, which I think I've mentioned a bunch of times, but I begin my day with gratitude. I I have a journal. It's not Ben Greenfield's, but I, I have a little private journal where I write the things I'm thankful for, and I seek to connect with God because I know there's something greater than we can even see with our eyes. And this is one thing that I've seen through all the indigenous cultures that I've connected with in Kenya, in Australia, in Cuba. There's a sense in which, you know, the happiest people and the healthiest people are the ones that develop this spiritual piece of seeking source or God or universe or whatever you want to call him and then connecting with him. And I think that gives them a greater sense also of, of their own place on this earth. Yeah. So let's talk more about that. What have you witnessed personally and how, like by visiting these very, you know, the body is holy, like in Ecuador, that just, that is beautiful to me because if your body is holy, well, then the food you eat, deciding what to eat is pretty easy because you're going to treat your body as if it's holy. You're not going to eat bad food. And I've realized through this podcast already uh, that guests or people that are listening know what is good for them, like mm-hmm. intuitively. Mm-hmm. It's just how to actually do it. But like, what have you learned personally about your spiritual life through this? When I was in Australia, I was with an Aboriginal woman of the Inangai tribe outside of Barcaldon. And she told me that she was going to be a hairdresser <laughs> um, until she started paying attention to her dreams and doing some deep listening, which I think in her culture was called Didiri. And she said that when she was quiet and still, she was able to hear her ancestors kind of calling her back to her land. And now she is a custodian over acres and acres of land um, that used to belong to her ancestors. So, I mean, it was a beautiful thing. She took me to see you know, like hieroglyphics and etchings on the cave walls. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is not in a museum, James. This is real life. But the reason I mentioned this in the context of spirituality is because she was still. And that's a challenge to me, a person who likes to be a human doing instead of a human being, you know. And the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. And I think if we stop and are still, whatever our faith practice or background may be, we actually have an opportunity to hear from God or our our conscience or our ancestors. You're going to hear something. And it gives you, I feel like it's one reason I have such joy and hope and happiness because I'm grounded in the fact that God has my back. And this isn't coming from nowhere. 
I was actually born with a birth defect. It's a long story, but I felt like God protected me in the womb. It could have been much worse. And then, you know, he kind of saved me physically through the surgery I went through. And I mean, it's just a beautiful story. But then I came to an understanding that, you know, God loved me and had my back. I became to Christian faith and I just was like, whoa. And so talk about security. You know, I know some people wear like a weighted blanket because it takes away their anxiety. This is like my weighted blanket, my faith. It's just, it gives me such a sense of grounding and purpose and joy. And so, you know, I think whatever faith people are in or whatever practices they may have, if they just learn that practice of Didiri, of being still, they might be surprised at what they hear. And then later, how that relationship with God or source may grow. It's just, I find it to be a very important uh, part of my health journey. And more and more, like I said, everywhere I go, I see it too. Uh, A sense of seeking something greater than meets the eye and finding a sense of joy and purpose in it. So how do you find time for stillness when basically our modern culture is everything is set up to take away stillness? You have to prioritize um, taking that time, carving out that time. And I don't mean it has to be like an hour. I mean, it's funny to me. Sometimes I do see Ben Greenfield or Luke's story and they're like, yeah, my morning routine takes two hours. I'm like, two hours? Obviously, you don't have a little You got to wake up at you wake up at 4 a.m. It's easy. <laughs> right, right, right. And you don't have a regular job. Anyway, I love those guys. Don't get me wrong. That What they do is important. Notice, I did say they carve out the time at the beginning of the day because your day will get away from you, especially if you reach for that phone first or start answering emails or getting online right away. Um, those things uh, distract. They're almost like, I think C.S. Lewis put it like, you know, there are kind of animals clamoring to get to you, you know, kind of outside your door. Don't let them in first thing, you know, find time one way or another. For me, like I said, I go outside. And then before I even pick up my phone, I make sure to have some time where I'm, you know, writing in my gratitude journal. I have another journal. I have, you know, certain practices to read the Bible and such that I do. And then I bookend my day. So I started off on my terms so that I can have the focus I need to face those lions and the other things kind of clamoring for my attention later in the day. And then I, when I lay my head down on the pillow and, you know, when my kids were little, it was fun. We would sing little songs with them and pray with them. Now um, they're older, a couple are at home, but they don't need me to come into their room and do all these things. But I, for myself, when I lay my head down on the pillow, I think of what I'm grateful for, you know, so I kind of bookend my day. And then what does that do? That also infuses my day actually with, with positive thoughts, positive energy, um, and so that I don't need to get flustered or riled up, and I used to much more, um, but I've learned, oh, okay, this too shall pass, and there's kind of a a wisdom and a, a sense of uh, grounding, like I said earlier, that helps me manage the, the things that arise, because things arise every day, right? But that these spiritual practices have been extremely helpful for me. And like I said, they they look differently in different parts of the world and people with different faith backgrounds. But um, there is a sense in which we have to be still because otherwise we're letting everything else fill our mind. It's kind of like junk food. You know, it's like junk information, junk stuff that is not uplifting. And so you want to start literally your day with the best nutrient-dense information and and moments that you can. If, if it's not going to be praying for you, it may be listening to some music or yeah, getting your feet on the ground. And again, these will literally lift your spirit so you can manage and not just manage, but you know, soar above the trials that are coming your way every day. Hey, 
Sorry to interrupt the show, but I must share this recent listener review from Jonathan. Jonathan writes, quote, I was shocked at how quickly the conversations became real and the real-life struggles and lessons learned from the world of professionals James is interviewing. This sounds a lot like my kind of people and gives a sense of hope and creativity for continuing your own journey to craft your ideal lifestyle that matches your values and how you want to live life. If this is your review, please send me an email at podcast at and I'll send you a swag bag. These bags are fantastic. They're full of some of my favorite things, including coffee from Purity Coffee, vitamin D3 from Thorn, energy bars from Keon, Lion's Mane Coffee from Forsigmatic, electrolytes from Protect, and you can. The James Quandall Show merch, and much, much more. You'll want to get your hands on one of these swag bags. How about you? Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. Now, back to the show. I have a similar practice to you and have noticed the same thing you mentioned about C.S. Lewis, about the, the, the wild animals outside the door, that if I leave my bedroom and I haven't read my Bible and prayed and spent time in solitude— then even if I keep my phone outside the bedroom, so I have to cross the house to get to it. I turn the Wi-Fi off at night. So I, if I want to get my email and I have to turn on the Wi-Fi, go across the house, grab my phone. The email doesn't auto download. I have to go in and actually refresh it to pull up the email. So I created all these hedges to prevent me. But the problem was I still would find myself some mornings out there on my email first thing in the morning and I would like walk away from my little prayer nook which was like the opposite corner of the house so I'm like okay well this isn't working either most days I'm still failing and so now I just keep my bible on my nightstand I roll over turn on the light and immediately uh start to read and and if someone is not a christian it can be an uplifting do- devotional of any kind it can be any book that makes you feel good and makes you happy. It can be poetry. It can be love letters. It can be anything, just something with substance that isn't useless in five minutes. Like most of the information that comes to me all day long tomorrow won't matter, right? So, <laughs> so true. I love that practice that you have. And again, I'm remembering when my kids were little and they'd be you know, clamoring and it's like you're just opening one eye and trying to survive. But what would I do then? I would incorporate some of these practices for them so that they would go to school, so they would feel grounded at the beginning of the day. All right, we're going to just hold hands and say a quick prayer, and here's a verse, and you know whatever it is to, again, give them that sense of security and hope and joy and starting the day on their terms. Because if otherwise, it's just chaos trying to find their shoes and this and that, and there's going to be some of that, but making sure that there are those positive moments to those positive connections. And a lot of it can happen around a table too. That's one thing I've noticed. Mm-hmm. In Cuba, one of the happiest men I met and healthiest was so self-sufficient. He's like, everything on this table right now was grown on this farm. And he said, and if the electricity goes off and of course Cuba has a lot of troubles, you know, and the, the people are really struggling, but he's like, I've got, he had some kind of system set up where his house could run on the manure. Like it was like amazing. I was like, what is happening? But he had found a way um, to supply his family's needs. And I think he had children and even grandchildren that they could come together around a table of food that they had grown themselves and find this connection and satisfaction that is just, you know, bar none, 
encouraging to our spirits. Again, and that's something too. think about um, even just including something tangible in your life. I guess what I'm thinking is a lot of us now work on computers and there's nothing to like kind of show for what we've done all day. Um, but so have a little garden in your backyard. I live in the city, but we have a little garden, you know, just something that you can touch and feel and observe also lifts the spirit, I think. Yeah. And we, we were talking about uh, how things have shifted during the last year. And I think there's a lot of people that have gotten into home gardens because they were worried about getting lettuces and tomatoes and other things like that. Mm-hmm. So I, that's extremely encouraging. And I hope people keep up with it um, because I, I know that with the Blue Zones, very few of them don't have some type of small garden in their own backyard where they may not get all their food there, but they can get some of the staples and their herbs and their spices and and teas I know in Okinawa and 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 that sort of stuff. But you mentioned uh, the dinner table, and that's another spot where I do gratitude. Also, where my wife and I come together for dinner, and she spends you know thirty forty minutes cooking dinner most of the time, and we'll sit down and we'll be so hungry sometimes we'll just like eat it in five minutes. And we had to find we had to create like rules. Like I'm all about boundaries and rules apparently. But so we sit down now and we say what we're grateful for. Well, first we actually take a really deep, two deep breaths and exhale slowly and without having our, our hands on the fork. And, and then we say what we're grateful for in the house, like for each other or what happened that day. And then a new practice is we started seeking something out of the house externally that we're grateful for, like a neighbor or like this conversation that we're having, something outside of the walls. And then we start to eat. And it has, like, I still eat fast, but it's completely different and so much more enjoyable. That's so beautiful. And I have a friend who, um, I guess I would just say he's a kind of a spiritual seeker. He's not a Christian necessarily, but he says he studied that if people pause over their plate, that something happens like the the food is actually, I don't know. I don't want to say it's more nutrient dense, but you know, there's some kind of transformation, almost an interaction that happens when we're grateful with our food and our digestion that we can't even measure. Like I was saying, if, what if the sun and the earth aren't functioning as well, because we've stopped being grateful. If we just consume our food, inhaling it, which I like to eat quickly too, I must admit. Um, but if we do that without gratitude, you know, there's something missing from the mix, I guess I would say. And so that's a great place to start, just a very simple way, even with some breaths and some envisioning even the food doing your body good. Yeah. Otherwise, why don't we just take a pill and not need to eat at all? Like just or have an IV with nutrients and, you know, we don't have to spend an hour cooking and eating. We can just get what we need and get back to work. Like I can't believe how good I feel after a dinner with friends and neighbors where it may take three hours to eat and 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 clean up and have wine and and share and break bread. And it's like, wow, I just spent three hours here. One, where did the time go? Then two, I sleep so good that at night. Yeah. What other like dinner time habits have you kind of found that help to bring that sense of community around the dinner table? Well, we also try to be grateful, um, obviously, before we begin our meal. But um, sometimes just as a little family game, we'll go around and and share, um, I guess we'll call it like a rose and a thorn or a highlight and a low light from our day. And the low light, 
you know, we're, we're just opening up our hearts to one another about something that was rough, you know, Mm. and then the highlight just is, is positive and fun. And so then we each get a turn to say something at the table. So we would do that with our kids when we were little, but then there's also a sense in which um, we try to make the meals together. And um, I have four kids that we would take turns some of us would make the meal and some would clean up. If you didn't make the meal, you would clean up. But that's also community building and connection because it's not just the food nourishing us, right? It's that connection with one another. So it makes me really happy that you and your wife would also talk about what you're thankful for. Um, I think that's important. And then the other thing you mentioned earlier, just to um, kind of accentuate it, you talked about turning the Wi-Fi on because you have it off at night. I we do make an effort. Our house is not all wired, which is where we're headed. And I'd love to be there, but we're not there just yet. Um, but what we do is we do try to have the Wi-Fi off when we're eating too, because it can mess with your mm. digestion. So um, we turn it off at night and we try to turn it off when we're eating or we'll eat out back so that we're not, you know, in the middle of all that. But this is really um, something that hit home with me over the years, again, through talking with Jack Cruz and other biohackers and experts I've interviewed, is that our environment affects our health a lot. And people have heard of like, oh, that guy was sick for a long time. It turns out he had mold in his attic and he didn't know, you know, so that we know there are things that we don't see that affect our health, but we don't often think about um, how the non-native electromagnetic frequencies that we're exposed to can be detrimental. And so I've learned a lot about that. And I think it's really important to do what we can to mitigate those effects by, yeah, turning off Wi-Fi at night is just a simple one. Like you do keep your devices outside of your bedroom so you sleep better. Um, there are things like that. We have a little kind of bag that we put over our router to make the signal less strong. Um, and of course, like in my work environment, we're wired here, which is awesome, but we do what we can to get out of any spaces that have too much radiation for too long, because it's, it's kind of like cigarette smoke. Dr. George Carlo said that. And I think James DeMeo, who I also recently interviewed that in other words, if we could see the radiation around us, it's not native to the earth, but it's something we've created through cell towers and Wi-Fi routers and all that. We would be shocked if, if it was visible like cigarette smoke, our rooms would be thick with it and we would be doing everything we could to get out of it. Instead, we embrace the technology because I know it has its place, but what we don't realize is that it could be hurting us. So I really encourage people to explore. That's one way to make your house um, more friendly to your health is um, mitigating those non-native electromagnetic frequencies. Yeah, there was a book that might came out last spring, and it was by Dr. Mercola, and it was called EMF. Yes, and yes. It what I you could skip the dense material in there if you wanted, and just look at the action steps at the end of each chapter, and then the summary at the end. And I think you could make your home environment EMF wise significantly better without that much of an investment. And you could ignore all the everything in there as far as the science and the why. It's the proof of why it's as important is in there. But if you believe it's important, then you can just look at that and, and figure out some of the steps. But turning off the Wi-Fi router at night or putting it on a timer for sure is one if you don't want to turn it off each night. And uh, I know some people have kill switches in their bedroom to shut off the power that's in the wall. There's uh, surge protectors that clean the power that's in the wall. There are so many things you can do. But like some of the simple ones are just like when you're in your car, turning your phone on airplane mode because you're driving in a metal box that's got rubber wheels that's not grounded. And because you keep jumping between cell phone towers, the signal has to keep amping up to connect to that new tower. And so you keep I mean, 
it's it once you start learning about it, it's kind of scary. Like you said, like it's like the cigarette smoke. You're like, wow, I am getting a ton of secondhand EMFs, and and uh, and I actually have gotten to the point now. I'm curious if you have. If I lay down, and my house isn't wired either, and I would, uh, it will be in the future. But um, if I lay down in bed and I'm and I'm trying to fall asleep, and my brain has like monkey brain, I can feel that that router's still on. I'm like, I wonder if I turned it off, but maybe my wife turned it back on. And I'll go out in the living room and I'll see the blue light on, and I go, the router was on. I know, I hate that. Oh my gosh! And you can drive yourself crazy with all the different things. But um, I love what you said. Like, look at a few action steps take those. And then the rest you kind of have to, um, I do have affirmations about being kind of, you know, impervious to some of these things. Cause there are, there is a lot of secondhand EMFs, just like you said, our neighbors, I live in a row house, so they have like a cordless phone. And so even I had Brian Hoyer who wrote EMF with Mercola come over and assess my house. And he's like, Oh, these numbers are not good because it's not always us, right? It's sometimes just the stuff around us, or we could be in a meeting room with 20 people and everyone's got their phones on, you know, so we're definitely getting exposed, but all we can do is the best we can do and take some action steps to mitigate it and then, you know, keep being as healthy as we can in all the areas and hope that our bodies can adapt and handle. But it is it is quite challenging. One thing that you can get a test, because I always feel like it's hard sometimes to know why to do something until you can feel how good it makes you feel when you aren't doing it. Yeah. And one thing that's always resonated with me is how good I feel when I'm camping. And I'm just in a tent and I'm barefoot. I'm sitting by the campfire at night. I'm getting red light in the morning, red light at night. My There's no phone service. So my phone's not even there and there's no wires around me. And I never sleep better, even though I shouldn't necessarily feel better <laughs> because there's like people all around me making noise and kids crying and dogs barking and like, all this stuff happening. But like, like do that, like go off the grid and see how you feel and then come home and then try to replicate some of that. Oh, I love that. Yeah, we have no idea, but we can make that little test of a contrast to see how do we feel even just, yeah, in a park, you know, one afternoon compared to in the office and and know that there's, yeah, there are a lot of factors. Even like you said, the electricity, um, we do turn our bedroom electricity off at night. Actually, we keep the circuit off all the time because I'm just like, even that, that field um, can let off some stuff that just kind of always... Um, Almost, it's, I don't want to say we're electrifying ourselves, but I read and interviewed Arthur Furstenberg, who wrote The Invisible Rainbow. And he said the word anxiety, that term wasn't coined until cities started to become um, using electricity. So it's really? really interesting. We don't realize even just electricity, how that can impact us. So, and you, I thought you were going to say you got a little meter. I have a little meter now. I don't use it tons, but it gives me an idea of what the space is like that I'm in and I can do what I can to mitigate stuff. I'm afraid because there's right now in this apartment, I'm in an above garage apartment and a very tight knit neighborhood. I'm there's so much I can't control that I don't want to know what's in here. <laughs> <laughs> I like ter- I control everything in my being, but I might have to move if I saw uh, potentially what's out there. And another place is the beach, like going to the beach barefoot, walking in the sand early in the morning. Like you feel like a million bucks walking back to the car. You you feel like you just. Just I feel so good that we do that once a week, and it's it. And I have a pretty connect disconnected life. I walk barefoot. I have grounding shoes and drink good water and all that, and it still makes me feel amazing. 
That's such a good word. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to the beach next week. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) And then you talked about Jack Cruz and I know he talks a lot about getting out in the sunlight early and late and trying to like catch the sunrise and the sunset as often as possible. Have you read anything on that? Yeah, I've learned a lot from him and others who follow him about that. And so it's part of my practice. Yeah, the thing is, like you said, how good you feel camping. Part of it is um, your circadian rhythm starts to sync with the earth's natural rhythm. And because of all we were just talking about, James, the um, the lights, the the blue light from our screens, the Wi-Fi, like we our bodies are kind of thrown off their natural rhythm. And so this could be impinging our health. And so what Jack Cruz recommends, because he had a health crisis of his own, he's a neurosurgeon who was overweight and having all these issues. And they thought, oh my gosh, I've hardly seen any sunrises. And he started to realize the importance of doing that because it sends a message through your eyes, like that literally the sunlight at, in that early morning hour time um, sends a message through your eyes to your pineal gland and kind of sets everything aright. It gets your hormonal function um, back on track. It, it helps your body know what time of day it is, things that you might never have thought of before. And so it can be kind of revolutionary when it comes to helping your body kind of reach a a happy metabolic state and um, proper hormonal function, like I said, better brain function and more profound sleep. So I wasn't having trouble with those things. But again, I learned about this and I was like, oh my gosh, this makes sense. And I never see the sunrises. I was a girl who was like, please don't wake me up before 8 a.m. You know, and I almost had a sign on my door, even for my kids, don't come in here Um, because I wanted to sleep so badly because I would always go to bed late. But when I flipped the switch, literally just took on a challenge for two weeks of getting up and seeing the sun within 30 to 45 minutes of sunrise, um, I just never looked back. I became addicted to it because it felt so good. Just like you said earlier about feeling like so good with your morning spiritual practice. Well, this is something else that also can really kind of set your body functions in the right rhythm with the earth. And so what I do at night, I don't always get the sunset light, but I try to wear blue blockers and do other things. So I'm not getting a lot of artificial light at night. Literally, I used to get on my computer at like 10 p.m. to do a few more things. And I'd be working till 1 a.m. And I was like, oh, I'm superhuman. Look at me. I didn't know that the blue light was making my body think it was the middle of the day. And so I was throwing things off and not, I mean, would I sleep at night? Yes, I would sleep, but I wasn't getting that restorative sleep that my body needed. So I really recommend just doing a little test like I did try a two-week test of getting that early morning sunlight and you'll be surprised at what health benefits you start to notice, I think. And if you live somewhere where you can't see the sun, is Hmm. just being outside at that time of day, are you still going to get the benefits just from the light? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I was wondering that myself and I've had people ask me, there are mountains or there are buildings in my way, so I'm getting the light, but I can't make eye contact with the sun, get out there anyway. Yeah. And I have a free PDF on my website, holistichilda.com that describes a little bit about what that routine can look like if you want to start incorporating that. Yeah. So I'll link to that and to some of the books that we talked about and your podcast and the Weston A. Price Foundation so people can find local farmers in their area and local chapters uh, for the show notes for this episode over at quandaw.com slash Hilda. And that's quandall.com slash Hilda, H-I-L-D-A. 
you know, I got blue light blockers. This was in 2016. I got my first pair. They're actually right here, actually. And oh, hey. um, they're, these are my old school ones now because now I've upgraded to ones that have like the red lenses. <laughs> and so I wear these now on the computer during the day. But the first, I used to stay up till 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. And I'd be video gaming or writing or computer programming or whatever it is I did. I don't even know what I used to do. <laughs> and the first night I wore these, I woke up at like, 6 a.m. the next day ah. and my that was like my wife's quiet time because I was never awake at that that early <laughs> and she's like what are you doing awake I'm like I don't know I feel like a million bucks I'm up I'm ready to go and, like, <laughs> and so then I've like phased my whole routine I go to bed at 9 30 now and I wake up between 6 30 and 7 15 every day so much different I feel like a different person Wow, I have the, had the exact same experience. It's amazing. And the hours at night when you would be working, you can just, you know, work in the morning. I don't know what I was ever thinking. Yeah, you now know? it's 10 to 2 p.m. Like that's, mm-hmm. I do the same stuff 10, p- 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. <laughs> exactly. But I always felt like, oh, I'm the best. There's nobody awake and it's so quiet. I can get so much work done. <laughs> and yeah, it was, yeah. And it's it's unbelievable how much better I feel and I too have been doing sort of the um, the sunlight challenge because mm-hmm. I read this uh, mitochondriac book and um, and it talked about getting outside in the sun within two hours of sunrise and then trying to see the sunset as many days as possible. And I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, well the sun rises at like six thirty or whatever. So that means I need to get outside by eight thirty, and I wasn't getting on my walks to like quarter after eight most mornings and i'm like well i need to phase everything up and even an hour earlier Uh um so yeah it's 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 be a fun challenge for 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 people to to take and one thing i i read in that book and i was like there's no way this is true it was wild and because you read a lot of things in these books claims like oh like your or each of your organs has its own circadian rhythm so when you get the sunshine like each of your organs can be in tune in with each other and, and their own processes and all that. But one thing it said was you get red light in the morning and one, you won't burn as easy in the afternoon sun. Yeah. And two, you can improve your vision. And I'm like, there's, I get the one about the burning. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. The vision, I'm like, I don't know about that. <laughs> and I don't know either. <laughs> and it's, but I went to the beach. I've been doing this for a couple weeks now. And the other day we were driving back from the beach and I could see better than I ever can remember. And I have 20-20 vision. So I have good vision. And it was sharper. And it, uh, I wasn't even thinking. It was unbelievable. So it it's true. Yeah. Well, I have a book that I can recommend along those lines. It's called Health and Light by John Ott. It was written in the 70s, I think. And he found the same thing, actually, now that you mention it. He said that um, his glasses broke or something. And um, he was at the beach. And he experienced the same thing. And so he wrote this whole book about the benefits of light. And I'm also reading, I've read a book called Chasing the Sun by Linda Geddes. And in there, she talks also a lot about the benefits of light and how even Florence Nightingale back in the 1800s would say how she noticed patients would turn to a window if there was a window in their room. She said, just like a plant might. But even if that meant that they had to lie on their more painful or wounded side, they would still do it because the light is that important. And so I really found both of those books fascinating and they helped me understand uh, the power of light for healing. 
So what else? So just speaking of, of natural home, I want to make sure we don't miss any of the really basics. We talked about turning off routers and, and we talked about eating local foods and, um, and, and having a community. But what are some of the other simple things we can do that someone listening could do today with maybe very little financial investment to mm-hmm. feel better and to, to start getting some momentum? Right. Um, well, I think we also mentioned obviously getting outside, but if you're not going to get outside, just open your windows. Even in the city, James, they say the air in your home is more polluted than the air outside your home. Isn't that interesting? So get that opening the window will get the air in, but also some of that light because windows block some of the spectrum of the sunlight. And so we want more of that light in our lives. I really think that would be helpful. I think that's very basic and not expensive. Um, Another thing to think about, um, not to overwhelm anyone, but is just just like the cream we put on our bodies or the makeup we women use, um, we need to think about what's in that stuff because it's stuff you're putting on your skin that gets absorbed. We might also make some small changes with our dishwashing soap or our laundry detergent. Um, we just get Branch Basics, you know, which is a company that I really see as having a lot of integrity and the stuff's unscented. Um, it's more natural. It's not full of all these chemicals and things, and it still gets our clothes perfectly clean. So making those small changes are good also because it's less of a toxic assault, just like we we're talking about secondhand EMFs. Um, in those like little plug-in air fresheners and little perfumes or this or that, like we're adding in our shampoo, we are just adding this load of kind of a salt to our bodies that um, our bodies might find relief from, just like you were talking about camping. And so if we make a little switch to more natural products that we use for either, like I said, cleaning things or bodies or what have you, um, we may find a little relief uh, that we didn't even realize something was irritating us. There's the saying, the canary in the coal mine. And I recently went on a tour of a silver mine in Wallace, Idaho, and it made a lot more sense to me. But since I've sort of done that transformation of, of the cleaning products and the, the, the shampoos and the soaps and the laundry stuff, I go down that aisle in the grocery store and I can't breathe where they have like the Tide and all the other products. <laughs> I, I just like start choking. I have to cup, I have to pull my shirt over my nose. To be, and before I used to love that aisle. I was like, man, this aisle smells so good and it's great. And <laughs> now it makes my eyes water and I start sneezing and I almost feel like I might get hives. Like it's, it's like the camping or the, uh, the beach thing again. Once yeah. you remove it, you realize what it does. And it's funny because it just reminds me a little bit about the food thing. You might think, I don't know, our, my kids only want Kraft macaroni and cheese. Let's say you just think that way. Like, you know, because our palates um, have grown accustomed uh, to what they call, you know, hyper palatable foods, foods that are made with a bunch of different chemicals just to mimic the real food, right? And so it might take a little switching. I've heard of moms that'll combine like raw milk with pasteurized or, you know, mix the like organic ketchup with the Heinz because their kids aren't used to it. But once you start moving in that direction, once you taste and appreciate the real deal, the other stuff you later come to realize is really not palatable because it's just a bunch of fake stuff, you know? So, you know, what you want to do is gradually, you know, bring your family along to the point where they're going to embrace the real stuff because they know how good it tastes and how good it makes them feel. 
Yeah. And not everyone has an example in their family or in their neighborhood of someone eating this way and cooking all their meals at home and sourcing local ingredients. Mm -hmm. I wasn't raised in a house where we did that. Were you raised in a house that had that? No, no. It's interesting. My dad's from Cuba and my mom's from Mexico. So you would have thought that they would have brought their traditions here to the U.S. where they met and married and stayed. But instead, they became Americanized and they were busy. They both worked. So, I mean, we had some home-cooked meals sometimes, but then they divorced and it became all like fast food. And, you know, we just had no idea. We had no idea. So you're right. It took a little time. It took some ramp-up time to begin to learn to nourish my family well. But as my friend Hillary Boynton says, simplicity is gourmet. You don't need to make, you know, these amazing dishes that are, you know, from the barefoot Contessa, you know, you can just simply get good solid ingredients and have some meat and some salad and, and a ferment on the side. And it's a good dinner and it's going to nourish much better than that mac and cheese I mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's a good point. And then what about cookbooks that you recommend for, I know, I think we, uh, we talked about the nourishing traditions cookbook, mm -hmm. which is a personal favorite of mine, but are there any others that are kind of simple to start with? Yeah, I really like um, The Nourished Kitchen by Jenny McGrother. And um, I think we have a couple of others on our shelf, but we literally will just get the best ingredients, James, and just, uh, you know, not get super fancy. I will buy a roast chicken happily from Sally's Farm and literally add some like lemon and garlic and butter, stick it in the oven. And it's just incomparable. It's just amazing. So when you have those basic good ingredients, you don't need to get super fancy. Um, yeah, that's yeah. been my experience. Do you ever notice like you have a family member come over and they're like, man, you guys are such good cooks. You're like, it's a roast chicken that I just kind of <laughs> marinated in butter and threw in the oven. And it took me 10 minutes. You know? Yes, yes. It's <laughs> funny. When I remember a young friend of my daughter's, she'd come over after soccer practice and be like, she goes, when I eat healthy at other people's houses, it doesn't taste good, but when I eat healthy here, you know, it does. And I knew it was because we're using butter. <laughs> we're not afraid of fat. You know, it wasn't like we were depriving ourselves at all. And actually, a lot of nights we would have even like BLTs and smoothies. The BLTs were with like, you know, pasture-raised pork and um, sourdough bread. And the smoothies were with raw milk. And it just tasted so good. But part of it, too, was the environment we made. You know, like I said, we had a positive connecting time at the table and, um, but part of it was just that it, the food ingredients were really good. <laughs> yeah. There's a book my wife, uh, or actually an author my wife likes. I think it's Sally Clarkston. And she writes these books on creating like a nice uh, dinner table environment, like lighting candles mm -hmm. and having placemats and real silverware and not eating on um, paper plates and having real glasses. And, and like that simple stuff makes like dinner a ritual instead of before I used to like cook a hungry man meal and eat it out of the package on my lap at the computer you know wow. and so yeah it's it's pretty interesting and I do have some listener submitted questions for you oh. that I want to share but and then um, after that I would like you to to share where people can find you and what you're working on and, and how we can support what you're doing because I I love your podcast and uh, actually just last night forage some chanterelle mushrooms 
in my own neighborhood and you had a you had a fungi expert on your show like a foraging expert yeah. and that's what that's what inspired me to kind of get into that and bought a bought a mushroom book and I found chicken of the woods in my neighborhood I found oh. chanterelles like so <laughs> so you've inspired me but um that's the um great. so here's some listeners submitted questions so one is how to eat healthy while traveling mm. It's tough because <laughs> because you don't know the source of the food all the time. And and part of the reason you're traveling is probably to connect with people. I'm speaking from my personal experience recently in Ecuador. You know, we would be out and about and we would just stop at a little place. Um, and I just had to take it in by faith that it was, you know, good. You just do the best you can under the circumstances. I do lean toward... Um, a little bit of, you know, carnivores. So I will go with a meat or a soup when I'm in a restaurant. Um, I'm not going to order the pasta or um, I don't know. I might get the burger, but not eat the bun or something like that. You know, so you just do the best you can. It's not easy, but um, I also would sometimes travel with activated charcoal, um, which I understand is good to take before a meal, especially if you don't know uh, its provenance and how it could affect your digestive system. I'm not particularly sensitive, but, and then I also would sometimes take my ancestral supplements with me just so I'd know I'd have some real food sourced, um, you know, uh, shoring up of my diet when I'm traveling. So those are the things I would recommend. And just, again, take things in with gratitude and know that it's just for a time, you know, so it's not, we should be so well. And I think Jack Cruz has said this, um, that we could eat a burger from McDonald's and be fine. And that's not the choice I'm going to make when I'm on the road. Um, but, um, my body should be able to handle it because I've, you know, made it strong to that point. Yeah. I had uh, Dr. John Deloney on my show and he, we were talking about friendship and how to build friendships and it's kind of mm. hard when you have this healthy mindset and you're like well I don't want to go there look and eat with them like they eat bad food and he's like James eat the pizza he's like that's his <laughs> phrase eat the pizza because you'll get way more out of that social interaction and that friendship and that relationship than like going home by yourself and having your bone broth with steak like mm -hmm. and so that has eat the pizza's really really helped me and it's I still like hard that. like I it's still hard but um, I, I find that to be very useful. And then another question was, what do you think are the leading distractions that keep us from living a healthy, balanced life? I really do think um, uh, some of the social media stuff is a lot. Um, I, uh, that TikTok, <laughs> you know, and Instagram and, of course, Telegram or whatever, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, more conservative or more, you know, aligned with your thinking, whatever thing it is, it could be Snapchat for all I know, um, but it can suck you in and really waste your time. And entertainment, even the word entertain means to like hold on to you. And so these things are holding on to you and keeping you from living. When my kids were little, I would tell them, we're not going to watch all this stuff on the screens. We're going to live. We're not going to watch life. We're going to live life. And so I'm not saying these things don't have their place. I like social media as much as the next person, but I have a little timer set on my Instagram. You were talking about boundaries earlier, James. I do that so that I'm more aware of how much time I'm investing 
And it's just too easy to see other people's content. And you can either get discouraged because you're comparing yourself to them or, or get puffed up thinking, oh, I'm better than them. I don't even know what it, it just messes with you. Right. So I think the better thing to do is at least I try to get in and get out, like post something to encourage people, but then get out and not get sucked in. And then if you need some downtime, like you were saying earlier, taking something that's really gonna uplift you, you know, poetry or the Bible or music or something that really does something good for your spirit. Because the reason it's a waste of time is because usually you walk away feeling worse than when you started. And that should be a measure to tell you that something's off, you know? So I really do think we need to be careful with our time on social media, um, whatever that looks like for you, whatever is kind of sucking you in, give your attention to something that's more worthwhile. Yes, that's so great. And so to wrap up, I want you to tell us where we can learn more about you and what projects you're working on and how we can support you and, and, and find you. Oh, thanks for asking. So I'm actually working on a mini documentary about my time in Ecuador. Really? So, yes, I'm cool. going to post it on my YouTube channel so people can find me at Holistic Hilda on YouTube. Um, I also hope to post an interview I did recently with Tommy John, which was a lot of fun. And he's that kind of radical chiropractor guy out in California who's like, don't even call me a doctor anymore because he just really wants to help empower people to realize that they have more, like I said earlier, more agency and more of an ability to heal themselves than they may have ever realized. So stop outsourcing your health is kind of um, his mantra, but he's amazing. So yeah, go to Holistic Health on my YouTube channel. And I also spend a lot of time on Instagram, really just to put stuff out that encourages people because there's so much out there that can really drag you down. So those are the main places to find me. Of course, the podcast is Wise Traditions that I make for the foundation. And oh, so we're going to have a conference with the foundation in November in Dallas, Texas. And mm. what I've decided to do, James, this is brand new. I don't know when you're putting this out, but um, I'm really just about to unveil all this. But I hope to do like a little road tour, like a little listener meetup tour on my way to Texas. I've decided to drive and I want to go through, you know, North Carolina and Kentucky. And so I'm going to try to make stops along the way to meet listeners. And I'm really excited about that. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I really want to just be with people in person. I, I like the virtual thing good enough, but there's nothing like that connection where we can actually hug and smile and engage and exchange DNA. So that's my plan. That'll be in late October because the conference is early November. So I might be two or three weeks on the road just meeting folks. So, Okay. Well, my wife and I will be um, in South Carolina or North Carolina at that time. So maybe if you are hey. come through there, we'll, we'll meet up. And if it's in South Carolina, we can bring some of our local friends that I know pay attention to this stuff. Too. Oh, that'd so be great. We'll set something up. That sounds really exciting. And I, I just love the content. Your podcast is, is extremely informative and they're, they're not that long. They're not as long as this show. They're easy to, <laughs> easy to digest. And they always have just like one thing you can do at the end to, to make yourself more well-rounded and it's just it's just so much fun and so i just am so grateful for you and everything that you've done and it's had a big impact on my family so oh i'm so glad to hear it yeah it's been a blast and one reason i'm doing that little road tour is because we just hit six six million downloads i can hardly believe it but, i um, saw that is it's like over 300 episodes and yeah. is it it's 
That's unbelievable. It feels like a million a year. I guess that's kind of how it averages out. The show's been going about six years or, you know, almost six years. So it's exciting, though. It's really fun. And I'm glad it's kind of really meeting people where they're at. And we cover the gamut. You know, we do have episodes about EMFs. We have other about food. We have others about um, even mindset. And I just, I love that we touch it all vaccines. You know, we're not afraid to be a little controversial. So it's fun and it's, it's good. People can take what means something to them and, you know, just not listen to the rest, whatever they want to do. But I think it's really good, basic information about ancestral wisdom for good health. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I hope we can talk again. Cause I, Me I, too. I, <laughs> it's been a pleasure, James. Thanks so much.